it's Christ or chaos. And one of the blessings of the last couple of years is that God has given us a glimpse of, of that chaos. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to another episode of The Cauldron Pool Show. Today we're doing a first, and that is having a guest return for a second time. And I thought there would be no better to do so than our number one viewed podcast so far, which was with pastor and theologian and author Doug Wilson. He is the pastor of uh, a church in Moscow, Idaho, which has been a huge blessing to my life and to many lives over here in Australia during the last few years in particular. So I want to thank you so much for returning today, Doug, and for joining me on the show. I was grateful for the invitation. Thank you for having me. Now, I really wanted to have you on, and I, th- I thought this was very uh, a very God thing, <laughs> so to speak, because recently you made mainstream media over in America for being a Christian nationalist. Now, this is sort of a phrase and a term that I've seen sort of come up quite frequently lately. I think it was Ali Beth Stuckey the last week. She tweeted, is Christian nationalism in the room? Question mark. Um, and then we recently ourselves in Australia, Cauldron Pool, had a mainstream media come after us and sort of say, you know, is the Narnia-inspired Cauldron Pool show um, fermenting Christian nationalism in Australia? So in light of all these things, I thought I would love to have you on to sort of discuss the elephant in the room, which is what is Christian nationalism? Because I'm not sure many people actually understand what it means to be a Christian nationalist, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. A lot of people hear it because of the negative connotation of the word nationalist and sort of immediately freak out. So I wanted to throw it out there and ask you, if you don't mind, what's your understanding of a Christian nationalist? Okay, this is a great question, and and we need we are desperately in need of definitions. Uh, our adversaries use the term Christian nationalist because it evokes the idea of fascism. Um, uh, Hitler's movement was a nationalist form of socialism, as opposed to Russia, which was an internationalist form of socialism. So you had international communism, international socialism, then you had nationalist socialism. And so uh, nationalism makes more than a few people think, oh, Nazis or fascists. Uh, But when we look at social organization, we basically only have three options. We could be internationalists, globalists, or we could be tribalists, you know, uh, one village fighting another village, or we could be nationalists, (laughs) right? Now, if we're going to be nationalists, I want the modifier to be Christian nationalists, meaning not, that would mean not bigoted nationalists, not um, socialist nationalists, not anything like the scary things that you've heard about from Mussolini or Hitler, but basically um, God has grouped us into different nations, geographically, linguistically, um, historically. Um, as it says in Acts 17, God sets the boundaries of where human humans live, right? And we should try to figure out how best to get along uh, so that we don't fill the earth with wars. And the best way to get along is to recognize the reality of nations and to to insist that these nations must submit to Jesus Christ. You put those two things together, it's Christian nationalism. So in the Great Commission, Jesus says, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go disciple the nations. um, And the word there is ethnoi, we get ethnic from it. So go disciple the nations. And uh, he says we're to baptize them and to teach them obedience. Well, that sounds like a Christian nation to me, <laughs> mm. right? Um, and and the thing that that is um, can contradicts the slander that we're being jingoistic or xenophobic or you know we don't like anybody outside our own little country um, is the fact that Jesus told us to do this with all all the nations. 
so um, disciple the nations, plural. So I don't believe in Christian nationalism as though America is the only one. I believe in Christian nationalisms, <laughs> mm. right? Uh, right. So I want I want to see Brazil and America and the UK and Australia um, submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, configure our laws in a more just way, and love God, love our neighbor. Mm. Yeah, I think it was um, someone on maybe uh, Canon Press, but he said another way to look at it would be Christian globalism, but not the globalism that um, we're sort of pushed forward as well. Like, you know, that spreading uh, the gospel throughout all nations across the globe, as you mentioned, not just specific to America, one nation. Um, Why do you think? And the thing thing that injects something there, there is a sense in which I'm a Christian internationalist. I just don't want it run by a bureaucracy in Brussels. Right? Mm. I, I want to see it uh, be a function of different distinct nations who have their own identity and yeah. know that other people across the water are supposed to have their own identity. Mm. And, and so when it, you never see, this is the illustration I use, you don't see a man in the card store when Mother's Day is approaching, getting into a fight with another man because the other man tried to pick out a card that says the world's best mom. And uh, the second man thought, no, my mom is the world's best mom. (laughs) (laughs) No, each one of them understands if I love my mom, if I honor my mom, then I understand why he's honoring his mother. Right. Mm. So it, it's not a, um, uh, is it, not a basis for competition. Mm, yeah. I often feel like today is a modern day Tower of Babel where everybody's trying to, you know, lose their, you know, their individual things. And, you know, God basically came and, and dispersed and, you know, and yeah. separated us. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, we're trying so desperately to to go against what God has said and put us all sort of back together. And, you know, I I think that a lot of people get scared of, of these words, unfortunately, because of how the, the language has been hijacked by these modern definitions and these modern sort of cultural ideas and these negative connotations attached to words. It's like the word anti-vaxxer, um, you know, that's been that's been misused and mislabeled and and slapped. So, you know, based on your definition that you just sort of mentioned, are you more than happy to identify proudly as a Christian nationalist? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm allowed to define the terms and as I just (laughs) defined them, I believe that it's a term that's salvageable. So um, there are some words that are just pejorative from inside out. If someone said you're a white supremacist, I'd say, no, I'm not. That's a slander, right? Mm. If someone said, you're you're a bigot, you're prejudiced, I'd say, no, I'm not. N- nothing like that. But I am a Christian, and I am an American. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, so my next question is, a lot of people, um, a lot of Christians as well, sort of get scared of the idea of Christian nationalism. I'm not sure if it's because they don't understand it or I'm not sure if it's because of, as we mentioned, the language is around it has been hijacked. But how how do we make Christian nationalism grow? And how do you make a nation Christian? Well, you, you a nation becomes Christian uh, the old-fashioned way, church planting, missionaries, evangelists, people preaching the gospel. So uh, when churches get established in an in a nation, and they're the kind of church that does not bottle up all the potency, keeping it be enclosed in their four walls. So, if if a church is if churches are established throughout a nation and they're evangelizing, they're preaching the gospel, they're doing they're they're conducting outreach. Uh, there's going to be at some point a collision with the powers that be Mm. Um, the, the powers that be are going to see that as a threat to their system, which it, which it is, but it's not a threat in this, in the sense of revolutionaries plotting to blow things up. It's, it's, it's a more subtle threat. Basic. What it boils down to is if I had, 
if if I had 200 churches in a small nation flourishing and, and preaching and teaching, and they're the fundamental Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord. Okay, that's the, that's our fun. That's in Romans, Romans uh, ten. Um, Jesus is Lord. Well, if Jesus is Lord, then it follows that Caesar isn't. <laughs> okay, um, or put another way, if the if I live in a secular state, if there is no God, let's say this is the state here. And God is here. If there is no God above the state, the state is God, mm. right? And the state likes being God. The state doesn't like acknowledging an authority above them that's outside the world that can't be bought, manipulated, threatened. Mm. Right? God is the transcendent holy one. And so if you have 200 churches where the message is being proclaimed faithfully, Jesus is Lord, and his authority is not dependent upon anything that we say or do. It's, it's based on the fact that he rose from the dead. Then uh, uh, the state authorities that want to be God are going to take that ill, hmm. and they're, they're, going to, they're going to try to restrict or interfere with or shut you down or call you names, um, misrepresent you to keep keep people keep people scared from uh checking it out Mm, yeah i think that um you know the last few years have sort of shown on on a large scale that the state has become god for for many um and i think Mm -hmm. that's why we're dealing with so much tyranny because you know i'm i believe that it's actually jesus it's actually christ who shackles the tyrant because if Christ is the yeah. one delegating the authority and that's acknowledged, then, you know, obviously it's it's a limited authority and the state should always be a limited authority. And, um, you know, I read this great book called Caesar and the Church and it, it talks about how, you know, Romans 13, you have to read it in context with Romans 12, understanding mm-hmm. what authority is and how, you know, a lot of Christians today, modern churches as well, are failing to understand how to read scripture and how to understand Romans 13 and the authority. So right. I think we're sort of seeing and the fruits in Romans of that. Thir- If I could insert there, in Romans 13, uh, Paul tells us repeatedly that this, the existing authorities are God's deacon, God's mm. servant. Um, and so uh, when I go to a restaurant, I know that the the waitress or the waiter that comes to our table is not the ultimate authority in, in that establishment, uh, he's there, the, and the Bible teaches us to regard civil authorities as having true authority, but not absolute authority, not ultimate authority. Only God has that. Mm. Yeah. That's a great sort of analogy to sort of put that into practical term to sort of see something that I've heard, um, a lot of Christians say, um, when I speak about Christian nationalism or, you know, uh, ideas of theonomy and things like that is, you know, you can't make a nation Christian, Evelyn, you just can't. It's all about making people, um, Christian. How, how would you respond to people who sort of throw that at you in response to, um, I guess what we've sort of been discussing? That's like saying you can't, you can't make an omelet. You have to break eggs and put them in the pan. <laughs> I'd say, well, <laughs> say, well, of course, that, of course, that's how you make an omelet. Um, mm. So if what they're saying is you can't, I can't go to Congress and pass a law that will make America a Christian nation. Well, they don't have to argue that point with me because I agree with that. Mm. Right? That's not how it's done. Um, mm. It's done through evangelization uh, churches thriving, churches being planted and growing. Uh, it's a battle for the hearts and minds of the people, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's very true. But once the people are converted, they need to act like it, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to say um, that we could lead everyone in America, let's say let's say there was a a great Reformation and revival, um, and two thirds of Americans individually, one by one repented of their sins and became Christians. Now, a month after that, would we still have the abortion laws that we do? No. You'd hope a month not. after that, would we, 
yeah. Uh, if there was a true Reformation revival, it's going to come out. If someone, if an individual really gets saved, their life is going to change. Hmm. And if a large number of people in a society are truly saved, then our corporate life is going to be changed necessarily. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think that a lot of people um, are afraid to sort of touch on the idea of legalism because a lot of, you know, a lot of people sort of say that, you know, uh, what's the point of making Christian laws or what's the point in doing that when it's not laws that save you? I often say something similar to you that as Christians, this is a natural regenerative process. And, you know, once you have, um, you know, regenerated your soul, you've accepted mm. Christ, that, that's a natural discourse of what should happen. You bear good fruit, you know, the fruits of but the I would have, yeah, I that's exactly right. And I would ask the person who's who said, what's the point of these laws? Be, uh, I would say, so you're an anarchist? Yeah. What about the what about the laws we have now? Mm. Um, should we have laws against stealing bicycles and laws against stealing cars and laws against murder? And if they say yes, you say, but no, everybody's got to be saved individually. Well, mm. <laughs> those are two separate questions. Right. It's very true that you you do, cannot find your way into heaven or earn your way into heaven by not murdering people or by not stealing bicycles. That's true. Uh, but it's still good and a blessing for everyone to have a law against stealing bicycles. Hmm. Yeah. In in the um the interview that was conducted um by the mainstream media the the question was sort of posed to you you know what about such and such laws and and they they went into different aspects and um said you know how how do you sort of see that coming to fruition you know and they were sort of talking are you going to allow you know um same sex couples for example to have legal rights and all of these things and you know you sort of came back with well Roe v Wade was once unlawful do, do you see that as the natural uh sort of process or progress of um uh more godliness sort of inserted into our laws how do you sort of see yeah. the practicality of laws changing as Christian nationalism progresses forward yeah if if someone asked me to describe an uh an ideal Christian republic a hundred years from now and asked, is there going to be, I call it same-sex mirage, uh, will there be uh, marriages be recognized for homosexuals? I'd say, no, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And if they say, well, don't you believe that homosexuals should have rights? I would say, yeah, a homosexual can marry a woman if he wants. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> I, it, we have the same rights. I have the right mm. to marry one woman. He has the right to marry one woman. Um, he has the right to keep and bear arms, just like I have the right to keep and bear arms. He has the right to free speech, just like I have the right to free speech. The right he doesn't have to marry another man is a right I also don't have. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, this, is not, uh, this is not prejudicial or bigoted or discriminating against them. Um, he doesn't have the right to draw four-sided triangles, but neither do I. Mm. He, he doesn't have the right to make water flow uphill in his house. Um, neither do I. So, mm. it, so what we have to do is recognize how God configured the world, right? God configured the world, uh, and he placed his image in the world. And it says in Genesis 1, uh, 127, um, maybe 28, in Genesis 1, it says, God created them in his image, male and female, he create, created he them. So the image of God is embedded in mankind in the construct of male and female, all right? Now, the illustration that I use on this is, imagine a discontented peasantry living in the down in the village in the valley, and there's a king on the a king in the castle up on the hill and the king is powerful. He's got a powerful army and the villagers hate the king and they don't like him at all. Uh, but he's way too powerful for them to do anything about, you know, his, his castle is impenetrable, uh, but they hate him. 
how can they express their hatred? Well, what they'll do is they'll burn him in effigy down in the village. They can't get at him, but they'll mm-hmm. burn his image. Right. Okay. Uh, God, God is in heaven and we can't reach him. We can't get him off the throne. He's untouchable. So what do we do? We're surly villagers and we burn the image of God down here. And that's mm-hmm. what the transsexual movement is. That's what homosexuality is. That's what the drag queen business is. All of it is striking at the image of God because mm-hmm. God says, I create, I place my image in the world in the fact that mankind is made male and female in the image of God. He created them male and female. Mm-hmm. And so when we try to scratch that out or mar it or distort it or pretend it doesn't exist, what, what we're doing is we're displaying our contempt for the king of the universe by trying to violate or vandalize his image in us. Hmm. I think much of the problems of today is a rejection of Genesis. I think most sort of cultural uh, issues, if you go back to, um, you know, how God created us um, and what Genesis was before the fall, it's everything is a rejection of that. Even like the climate change agenda, I look at Mm -hmm. that and, you know, Adam was created to tend to the garden, to nurture it, to Mm -hmm. look after it, not to let it grow wild and we can't touch anything because of this. And, yeah, I think everything, like you mentioned, comes back to a rejection of Genesis. um, Absolutely absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. So I think... um, yeah, I, I, I loved your analogy then about the, the man on the castle. I was just thinking that's exactly what's, what I'm seeing today. Um, mm-hmm. my, my next question will be those of us who are down in the villages with the burning fires and the, you know, all of this around us, how, how do we put those fires out in, in the right way, in the biblical way? Uh, one of the best things we can do is um, display or manifest the image of God that they're hating in a way that they have that brings cognitive dissonance into their life. So let's say uh, sometimes when people attack the image of God through lesbianism or homosexuality or transsexual things, it's because they grew up in a heterosexual household that was dysfunctional, right? The husband was not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. The wife was not being, it wasn't running harmoniously. It was recognizably heterosexual, but it was, it had the staggers, right? Mm -hmm. And that put, um, that has burned a lot of people. And so they veered off the wrong direction to, to try to get away from this reality. The best thing in the world we can do is plant, cultivate, and encourage godly marriages and godly homes where the image of God is displayed, is on display for for the people who hate it simultaneously, but are attracted to it at the same time. Mm. Right? So I, I think that, that that's, and that's one of the reasons why in our ministry here, so we've had so much emphasis on marriage and family books, um, mm. reforming marriage, uh, the fruit of our hands, uh, why children matter, all the material that we em- were, we're emphasizing the family because there's, I don't think there's any way to conduct this cultural war without uh, intact families that people want to be around. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love that um, what, you know, you do at your church and also the, the materials you're bringing out through Canon Press is so family focused. I think a lot of people have asked me, um, you know, particularly other women and things, um, you know, how do we, how do we beat this? How do, how do we combat this? And I often use a lot of your resources that your church put out in that, mm-hmm. you know, you protect the four walls of your home and mm-hmm. that's your focus. And then, you know, your home extends into the world, um, so to speak, yes. and you, and you spread that. It starts there though. And I think, yeah. um, we've got that so wrong for such a long time, unfortunately, which is why, um, I think we're losing. I think that's why they have attacked the family because they know that the family mm-hmm. is the solution. Cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the solution, and it's currently in a pretty vulnerable position mm-hmm. because of our disregard of it. Yeah, sadly. I think, you know, 
you have to look like the age that people are beginning families is so much later than before. Um, the mm. divorce rate is through the roof. You know, we, we do have these other sorts of marriages that are now seen legal um, in the eyes mm. of our country's sort of things. And, you know, I think um, focusing on the family is the best way to put Christian nationalism forward because it's an extension yes. from from that. Um, right. Something that I, I noticed in, um, you know, the uh, documentary or the, the news piece that came out about yourself and your church is um, there were uh, criticisms, obviously, from people within your community. A lot of those yeah. criticisms were very feminine. <laughs> so a lot of, yeah. I didn't see one male <laughs> pastor that um, came and spoke out against you. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of women who think that they're Deborah who, who wanted to sort of say something against what you, what you sort of, you know, are putting forward mm -hmm. in your church. Is the way that it was sort of portrayed accurate? Is there a real, uh, distinction within the community between, I guess, your church and, and other churches? Is there hostility? How, how do you sort of deal with that, um, while still presenting, I guess, the gospel of Christ? Now, there, um, there's certainly the the division that the uh, news segment was accurate on the division between us and the liberal churches, you know, the, the Unitarian Church, the the people who have abandoned the Word of God. Yes, mm -hmm. there's a there's a very real division, but one of the things, one of the institutions that they mentioned was Logos School, which is. In a, this is a small town, uh, 22,000 people, and Logos School has over 600 students this year. It's a, for a Christian, wow. classical Christian school, it's enormous compared yeah. to the size of the, the town. And mm -hmm. in that school, we have, I think, something like 30 churches represented. So uh, evangelical churches, there, there are a number of evangelical churches that we get along with. Um, that uh, they send their kids to Logos, just like we send our kids to Logos. So uh, if they had, they could have found any number of churches that were not Christchurch that we're friends with. So mm. I serve on the board of Logos School, and uh, one of the other pastors of a, of an evangelical church is also on the board serving together with me. We worked we work together. We've been friends for years. So yeah. it was a it was an accurate representation. If you were talking about the mainstreams, the mainstreamers, and the evangelicals, but if you limited it to the evangelicals, no, we're we're on good terms with other churches. Yeah, and how does a Christian or you know people like yourself who are trying to plant a godly community? How how do you sort of deal with I guess uh, the public perception who might not necessarily be Christians? Um, and like, how do we sort of make that a fruitful relationship? The the best way, uh, and this is going to uh, this will be. This is going to sound a little bit like uh, Zen Presbyterianism for a minute, <laughs> but the best, <laughs> but it makes sense at the end. Um, the best thing I think you can do to establish a good and godly reputation in the first instance is to not care about your reputation. Mm. <laughs> okay. You, you have to just fundamentally not care if they lie, if someone's lying about you. Um, because otherwise, as soon as you care, they've got a hold of the steering wheel. Yeah, uh, they can they can steer you wherever they want. Um, and Jesus says um, first, he says, "Beware when all men speak well of you," for that's how they used to talk about the false prophets. That's one thing. And then he says, "And in the, in that day, uh, when you when you are slandered, despitefully used, when they heave every manner of dead cat against you." Jesus says, in that day, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. The, mm -hmm. Those And that I don't see any way of doing that without not caring yeah. what they're what they're saying. Now, the but the but here's the this is this punches through on the other side. If you really genuinely not don't care, there's a kind of not caring 
that's sociopathic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone doesn't care because he's, he just mm-hmm. hates the world. But there's a there's a kind of not caring that's before the Lord. You just right. you give it over to the Lord and you say, Lord, these people are saying these things about me. I want to not care, just like your words says. The, the Lord blesses that over time. And you see people coming back around who used to be hostile or who used to be swayed by the slanders. Um, and one, we had, had a, a couple lived here in the community for years. And when uh, uh, last year, when the Vice article came out, there was a Vice magazine did a, did a hit piece on us. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that article came out, this man who was not in our church uh, looked at that and he said to his wife, that's it. We're joining Christ church. <laughs> so um, the people can see that as the, as the woke nonsense gets more and more demented and, and we just don't care. We don't feel under any pressure to go along with any of it. Um, we have found that that stance has been enormously attractive. And it's been enormously attractive in some cases to people who were somewhat put off by us mm. some years ago, right? Yeah. Some time ago, they'd say, "What? why is Wilson's popping off about that? It's not so bad. You know, mm. why is he so uptight about this? It's okay. It's, it's not the best, but it's okay. Well, um, as, as the cancer progressed and we're now stage four, terminal cancer in our culture uh, a lot of christians have awakened and said oh this mm. is what they've been talking about all this time and i've i've found it a, a big unity builder so you've got to be you've got to be willing for a few rough spots in the road uh and for a few awkward or challenging conversations but if you if you're doing if what you're doing is biblical and you're doing it before the Lord and you really don't care, Mm. you're going to find yourself friends with a lot of these people later on. Mm. I think it's incremental compromises over a large scale of time that has been the Achilles heel of the church. Like you sort of said, you know, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. And you can see how it has been these tiny uh, almost insignificant compromises that have built up and now we're tripping over, you know, what was swept under the carpet for so long. So that's it. Yeah. yeah. I definitely see, um, how, um, you can't, you probably, there's that, what's that famous saying about if you peak too early, it's almost wrong, but if you know how you've got to, if you're the first one to do something, it's all, you know, if you're the second in line, but I guess as Christians, we don't have that luxury. We don't, we have to stand at the front, even if we have to do it first, even if we have to, um, get persecuted for it. That's, that's part of, you know, being regenerate in our souls, I guess, and that's part of obeying God's law, which is to spread the gospel and to not compromise on on the scriptures. Uh-huh. So, Amen. yeah, yeah. Um, so, obviously, you've heard a lot of other objections. Uh, you know, you've been called a cult. But what are some of the major objections that you've sort of, uh, I guess, come across when you've sort of spoken about Christian nationalism? So, very uh, sometimes people will try to debate the issue itself. Uh, but that's really pretty rare. Um, what do you mean? They'll ask you to define terms. What do you mean national? What do you mean? You know, um, but that's a discussion or a debate that I'm more than willing to have. Nine times out of 10, what the, the counterattack will be changing the subject and slandering us about something. So, um, the slander will be you mishandled um, a sex abuse case 20 years ago, or, you, you know, you mishandled that sex abuse case, or they'll say um, you're an unreconstructed Confederate. You want to do over the battle of Gettysburg. Um, uh, another thing that they'll say is you, you deny justification by faith alone, which is not true. Um so the attack is either on um, um, like pastoral malfeasance or an attack on historical heresy, 
you know, the, the where you, if I think the South was right on the constitutional issues. Um, so that's a heresy uh, in in their world or um, you're you violated a tenet of reformed orthodoxy. Uh, you deny justification by faith alone. Uh, but I affirm justification. That's an easy one because I affirm justification by faith alone. And uh, and the others take some explaining. What I have on my blog at the top under about is I've got a thing called a tab called controversy library. And uh, <laughs> I have I have visited that library a few times, Doug. <laughs> yes. Uh, and what we try to do is have if anybody's really interested in the answers and they're not just throwing they're not just mud gobbing they're they're really interested is there an answer to this um we have all the answers we could think of for all the standard accusations that are thrown at us Mm -hmm. and we want to have that those resources um there because Mm -hmm. we don't i i tell people when people move here and i visit with them i i'll say something like uh you can ask any question you want you're not going to hurt my feelings if you, you know, if you if you ask if I go down to the basement my lunch hours and kick puppies, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. Uh, some of the time, some of the time they spell my name right, <laughs> and and I I don't mind people checking it out. I think it I think they'd be irresponsible if they didn't check out. Uh, some of those accusations, and if we got all huffy and defensive about it then that's an indication that there might be a problem. Mm. Well, I, I actually want to thank you for letting me um, have this conversation to you whilst wearing pants. Um, I know that um, that's, you know, something that you're apparently not allowed to do whilst, you know, I loved that they fell on their own sword with that one because they panned the very next frame to women in pants. Yeah, that was. We thought that was very funny. You you couldn't script that one, Doug. You couldn't you couldn't script that one. But no, I, I do appreciate that you are so transparent about these things. I think as Christians and as ministers, uh, pastors, you know, um, in particular as well, but Christians as as a whole, we should be willing to have the discussion. And Correct. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but um, something that I have experienced myself um, in Australia, and I get I get I get sort of. Um, confronted by so many other Christians who feel the same, is the church is too afraid to talk about cultural issues. Sometimes we just want, as Christians, answers. How do we approach the issue of same-sex marriage and do it lovingly and also remembering what Spurgeon said, which is, you know, six feet of dirt makes all men equal. How, How do we, as Christians, navigate through these waters? Because these are, you know, they're not, I guess, just specific to 2022 look at what you know romans writes about they had all kinds of things back then that obviously is similar to what we're seeing today so we have everything there but unfortunately i've struggled as a christian to just have answers and have pastors who are willing to um confront these issues and talk about them so i've really appreciated that you you are open to that you're willing to you know, talk about the culture and politics. It's incredibly helpful, I find, as a Christian navigating. So I thank well, you for that. It was probably some somewhere around 1988 when we we used to have a magazine called Credenda Agenda, and that's where I first began writing seriously. And then, so right around there, 1988, I decided what my ideal target audience was going to be, and. You know, so if I ask the question, who am I writing to? Who is my audience? Um, I define the audience that I was writing to as evangelical Christians who were greatly distressed at what they saw going on all around them, Mm -hmm. knew that it was wrong, and didn't quite know how to articulate what was wrong with it. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's, that's my ideal audience. And I've tried to stick with writing for those people. Um, in the 30, 35 years since then, I, that's who I'm writing mm. for is Christians who evangelicals are fond of saying, Jesus is the answer. Well, that, I agree with that, but what was the question? Mm. <laughs> well, the question should be, 
any question that comes into my mind, if Jesus is Lord, he's Lord over this question. So is Jesus the Lord of climate change? Is Jesus the Lord of climate change debate? Is Jesus the Lord of sexual matters? Is Jesus the Lord of foreign policy? Is Jesus the Lord of the South China Sea? Is Jesus, the, you know, all of these things, um, mm. you can't just say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You have to get into the text and say, well, okay, what does the Bible teach about banking? What does the Bible teach about inflation? What does the mm. Bible teach about um, the right to keep and bear arms? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I... I I appreciate that. And you, you have been consistent. I will say that you have, you know, you, I think I like your non-sociopathic version of, I don't care. I'm going to try and do that better because I get a little bit emotional sometimes. Maybe it's my gender. I don't know, but if somebody hates me, I'm a bit like, I get really upset by it. And so I need to get better at, you know, my allegiance is to God, not to my reputation. So um, I'm going to try very hard to do that. But I sort of, um, I wanted to sort of uh, talk about something that has come up in the last week um, and I'm yeah. not going to get into too many details or anything like that. It's not really my place, but I wanted to sort of give you an opportunity to talk about um, something that happened. I think it was around 2002, which was the federal vision. And this has come yeah. back into light for s- some reason. And, you know, there have been accusations that um, your understanding of justification alone is it's wrong, it's heretical, um, and it's false teaching. And obviously that's yeah. a very big accusation. I felt maybe this would be a great opportunity for you to, to sort yeah. of discuss what you think and, and sort of put it out there. Uh, thanks. Uh, let me say what I f- frame it so I can say what I, think, what I think is happening first. So we've sort of been given, we don't deserve it, but we've been given the role of becoming something of a spokesman. Our church is sort of a spokesman institution in the testimony against all the woke stuff. Okay. And the meet the press interview of a few weeks ago was sort of a a big splash in that area. So uh, here, here we were representing conservative evangelicals and speaking for them. And um, that sort of disturbed a, a number of people. When, uh, and a lot of the people who've, who've prided themselves on their orthodoxy on some of these doctrinal issues, like sola fide, justification by faith, have been remarkably silent during, the, during this most recent woke spasm. And they start seeing, they've started to see rank and file Christians turning to us and getting getting material from Canon Plus and buying our books. Oh no, oh no, what can we do? Well, let's, um, let's throw out this justification by faith thing to make people pause or make people um, uh, think twice before they listen to us. And I think it's a, a sort of a scramble for, uh, okay, who's going to be speaking for us? Who's going to be uh, who, who's going to lead? Who's who's going to be in that position? So that's that's what I think is happening. Um, with regard to the the substance of the thing, this is what I teach on justification by faith alone. I believe that faith is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Ephesians two eight and nine. And the faith that God gives when someone is justified, the instrument of their justification is faith. And that faith is a gift of God, okay, so that no one can boast. Now, when God gives faith, he gives the only kind of faith that he ever gives, which is living faith, (laughs) right? God never gives dead faith. God gives living faith. And living faith looks to Christ and Christ alone for justification. So uh, my position on justification is the position of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So it's just, I'm classic right up the middle, standing on the yellow line in the middle of the road on justification by faith. Now, when God gives living faith, as the Westminster Confession says, is no dead faith. It's not a dead faith. It's living faith. When God gives that living faith, it turns out that it's still around. 
the next morning. So if I, if I was converted on Tuesday, I called on the Lord because God gave me faith. He gave me living faith. I called on the Lord in faith. I was justified as, as a punctiliar judicial act by God on that day. It's over and complete. Okay. The, my justification is completed. My faith is not completed. My faith is still here. Right. <laughs> right? My justification is a judicial declaration. My faith is a living entity. And I was converted on Tuesday. Well, here on Wednesday, I'm figuring out how to live, what to do. How is a Christian supposed to act? And so my sanctification, which is what happens Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, is motivated by the same faith that God gave me initially, right? So um, that means I believe that godly works, a change of life, obedience, is a necessary outflow from that initial action, but it's not the it's not to be confused with that initial action. So I'm justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I'm justified by faith plus nothing. And I'm I'm justified because I look to Christ plus nothing else. But once God changes me from a bramble bush into an apple tree, and he did that on Tuesday. On Friday, I'm producing apples. And if I don't produce any apples, and if I still am acting and looking like a bramble bush, then that's grounds for saying, I don't think anything really happened on Tuesday. But it's, it's not my works combined with my faith that justify. So that's, that's the way that I would explain it. It's, I'm, um, Classic reformed, uh, uh, five solas. Um, yes, mm. yeah, because I think that some of you know the federal vision things was, um, a lot of people uh thought that you thought that works is what justified you, um, and things like no. that. And I, I read a few things that, um, you know, didn't make sense. Like hearing, uh, you know, some criticisms and then hearing what you've actually said, some of the things didn't make sense. But I wanted to ask you, if, is there a difference between faith and faithfulness? And how would you um, differentiate the two if you do see them as different? Yeah, I, th- I see them as different. Faithfulness is um, exhibited in your sanctification. It's a downstream result. Faithfulness would be the apples on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, Faith is the instrument that God gives me that he uses to turn me into an apple tree. So I would say faith and faithfulness are different things, related but Mm. different. Mm. And would you say that, um, you know, sanctification and things is part of perseverance of the saints, or do you think that that's a Mm. separate issue? Well, Yeah, and I prefer to say perseverance and preservation of the saints because it's not like God saves me and then I, I've got to finish out on my own. God preserves me. God keeps me. So mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, God preserves me in holiness. I persevere in holiness. But the best way to explain it is how Paul says in Philippians, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the only thing I'm allowed to work out is what God works in. Mm. Okay. God works it in. I work it out, but I can't generate something out of nothing on my own. Um, so the, the faithfulness that I exhibit is by faith from first to last, all the credit, uh, for it goes to God. And it's very different than my justification when I was first converted. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, people have said that uh, a book that you wrote um, about the federal vision and things like that is that's a, a lot of people draw from things that you've said in that book to to sort of justify why they think that it's heresy. Is what yeah. I, I I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't read the book that particular book, right. so I can't speak from experience of what I've read. Yeah. But um, 
a lot of people suggest if you've changed your view on on justification um, and obedience and works and things, uh, should you remove the book? I, again, I haven't read yeah. it, so I'm not sure. But but do you have? Um, uh, yeah. yeah, is what you said then what you believe now? Yeah, I, I, if someone said, "Would you do anything differently?" The name of the book is "Reformed is Not Enough," and "Reformed" is in quotation marks. Mm. So. Um, reformed is not enough. Uh, going back, I would probably want to uh, release it under a different title because I think some people didn't see the quotation marks and they they thought that I was rejecting reformed theology. What I was rejecting was so-called reformed theology. That's the first thing. Yeah. But after that, what I did in that book is very early on, I had three chapters in a row and those three chapters were dedicated to establishing my reformed bona fides, my Calvinistic bona fides, and my evangelical bona fides. So I said, later on in the book, I'm going to get into some territory that some of you are not used to. But before we go there, I want you to know that I'm a classic reformed guy. I'm a classic five-point Calvinist, and I'm a hardcore evangelical the absolute necessity of the new birth. So I think I put up enough hedges or qualifications at the front end of that book. If, if going back into the second part of the book, if, uh, if there was one thing that's a stumbling block to many evangelical Christians, I think it's a stumbling block because evangelical Christianity in the Anglosphere is overwhelmingly Baptistic. And I think that's why it was a stumbling block. I argue in that book that the word Christian can be used in two different senses. There's the kind of Christian who goes to heaven when he dies. And there's the kind of Christian who's not a Buddhist. <laughs> right? so, so you have someone who was baptized in infancy, grew up in the church, says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but he's not converted He's not regenerate. He's not living like a Christian, but he's not a Buddhist. He's not a Hindu. He's not a Muslim. And he's a member of a visible Christian church. So I grant that that person is a Christian in sense A. Right. And then I also say, but there's the absolute necessity of the new birth. You've got to become a real Christian. In the Old Testament, Paul argues this way in, Jew, in Romans, not all Jews are Jews. Not all Israel are Israel. At the end of Romans 2, a Jew is not one who's one outwardly, but one who's one inwardly. A Christian is not one who is one outwardly only, but has also got to be uh, a Christian with heart conversion, a heart yeah. uh, toward God. So the fact that I was talking about two different kinds of Christian, when many Christians are accustomed to speak of, you're either a Christian or you're not. Hmm. Right. Um, yeah. That tripped um, that tripped more people up than I thought it would have. Hmm. Yeah, I, I actually I did hear that, um, you know, that that analogy. And I remember thinking, yeah, what what would you label someone who has been baptized and grown up in the church and, you know, professes to be a Christian, isn't a Muslim or an atheist? Yeah. It is an interesting thing. Like, what do you call them? <laughs> like, so, um, yeah, yeah I, I understand that what you're sort of saying. Uh, I won't get into too much, but I did want to ask you um, your thoughts on the first Adam, because this is something that's come up as well with teaching in that, um, you know, I guess well, my question would be, do you, do you think in the first Adam um, that Adam was trusting in God for righteousness or um, he was trusting in God for forgiveness. How, how do you think that okay. that particular first Adam is different to today? Are you us? asking about the covenant of works? Correct. Yeah. The, okay. So yeah. Um, the first thing is, uh, this is just, the first thing is just a terminology thing because yeah. whenever you say works, um, people in a Bible discussion, people think Pharisee. So I don't think um, Adam was being required to live like a legalist <laughs> in the Garden of Eden or live like a Pharisee. I, I prefer to call that there's a different covenant that Adam was under. 
Another name for it elsewhere in the Westminster Conf Confession is the covenant of life. So there's the covenant of life. After the fall, God establishes a different distinct covenant called the covenant of grace. So there's the covenant of life and then the covenant of grace. So the question, the question would boil down to um, how was Adam supposed to keep that covenant? Okay, did was that covenant a covenant of raw obedience or was it a covenant? What was it too also a gracious covenant? And I believe it was to a gracious covenant, but not grace of forgiveness of sin. But let's just, I use a very simple thought experiment. If Adam had successfully resisted the temptation and had uh, rescued his wife and refused to eat the fruit, and then the next day it dawned on him what a narrow escape they'd, they'd had, would it have been appropriate for Adam? to thank God for sparing him. And I think it would have been. Right, so did God have anything to do with that, um, with his faithfulness? Now, I believe that Adam was, uh, it, was a, it was a test of his obedience. So we, the human ra race fell because of Adam's disobedience, and we were saved because of Christ's obedience. The first Adam disobeyed at a tree. The second Adam obeyed on a tree. And it was a matter of obedience, disobedience in both cases. So I believe it was a covenant of obedience, a covenant of life. And Adam was required to do what God said to do. But if he had done it, I think he would have owed God a debt of thanks. Hmm. Yeah. Um now, before we sort of wrap up today, I'm aware that we're sort of going on the hour here. I, I gave you an opportunity last time um, to sort of speak to maybe people in the audience who aren't yet regenerate in their in their hearts, aren't yes. yet saved. And I, I would love it if, if you don't mind um, sort of maybe speaking something to the audience, a, a message, whether it be, you know, the, yeah. the gospel. Um, just I'd love to give people an opportunity to sort of hear that from, from you before we wrap up. Okay. Thank you, thank you for that opportunity. I'm I'm fond of coming back to this phrase. It's Christ or chaos. Um, that's the choice that every human being, and I believe every human society has before them. It's Christ or chaos. And one of the blessings of the last couple of years is that God has given us a glimpse of of that chaos. And I believe that there are basically two paths, two ways. There's the way of life and the way of death. The way of death leads up to the lip of an abyss, and that abyss leads to the bottomless pit. It's just, and, and we see the chaotic tumult of unbelieving thought, unbelieving responses, where people do and say the most irrational things and bite and devour each other on the way. So that's the way of chaos, the way of death. If you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, which you can only do if you follow him first to his cross and then to his grave and then with him in his resurrection. If you say, I want to respond to the invitation to follow Christ, to walk with Christ, um, he's going to lead you on another path entirely. And that path, he, he himself is that path, actually. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So I would issue that invitation if you are befuddled by all uh, by the fact that uh, if you're befuddled by how we've been thrown into clown world and you think how did this happen what well it's because it's it's Christ or chaos and so if we decide to follow Jesus Christ then the world swims into focus your sins are forgiven everything makes sense and you follow him if you don't, it's just going to get darker and crazier and more demented. And so that's the basic uh, thing that I would present. The way of the cross, burial, resurrection, following him, or the way of continued self-centeredness. Amen. And I, I hope and I pray that if anyone listening today um, hasn't accepted Christ and is living in chaos, that you um, yeah, you reach out and 
make contact if you have any questions. But I'd love to uh, direct people, Doug, to somewhere that they can go to follow your works, your books, your ministry, yeah. um, if you don't mind giving us. A- yeah, probably the best, the one place where you can um, go that will get you to pretty much everything else I'm involved with, uh, with would be my blog. So um, it's uh, the address is dougwills.com. Um, and the name of the blog is Blog and May Blog. And on the front page, if you scroll down, you'll see pretty much a link to pretty much everything that I'm involved with. And I do recommend everybody does that. Um, and I personally want to thank you for um, for your time today. It's It's been a blessing. I'm really glad I could discuss Christian nationalism all whilst wearing pants again. Um, <laughs> and that, um, you know, we could sort of nut those things out because, yeah, it's, it is a topic that is it, you know, on the tips of everybody's tongues at the moment. It's it's not just in Christian circles, it's in secular worldly things yeah. as well. So I, I think that's an encouraging thing. Um, and I think that it's something we shouldn't shy away from. And so I appreciate the discussion around it. I hope it helps other people. Um, and yeah, I, I really hope um, and, and pray for the, you know, the future for you. And you're in our prayers over here. And uh, thanks again for coming on today. Right, well, thank you. And, and if I behave and if I'm good, then maybe I'll get invited back for a third time. Yeah, that would be lovely. I'd love that.